This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I'm so excited for today's conversation. Curtis Sittenfeld made her debut in 2005 with a novel called Prep, which, you know, for some of us was just a screaming pile of fun. It was so good. I love this book. I still love this book. And there have been, what, seven novels since then and a story collection? Yeah, this is so, it's so funny because somehow the story collection scrambles my brain and makes right. makes the math confuse me. I think this is my eighth book. I think this is my seventh novel, eighth book. And eligible, we're going to get back to eligible at some point because, you know, who doesn't need a little bit of pride and prejudice? And if I remember correctly, reality TV had a really big play in that book as well. Romantic comedy is the new one. This book is so charming. It is so charming. But you have this line that you've used to describe your work in the past where you're saying novels need to do more than one thing. And I kind of want to start there. And then we can come back to Sally and Noah and some other folks in romantic comedy. But yeah, novels are supposed to do more than one thing, right? I think most do. And I think they should just because it's like a novel is big and expansive and even you know a short novel which is this mm-hmm. I know I, I love and aspire to write but haven't right. haven't done so yet but like a 200 page novel is still 200 pages so I think right. like plenty there's plenty of room for different things to happen this new book is part love story part workplace comedy part in a way coming of age for Sally because you know our girl and boy do I like this character our girl maybe gets in her own way a little yes. bit. Oh, without question. Coming of, <laughs> coming of middle age. Maybe, maybe I can write another novel called Coming of Middle Age. You know, I mean, coming of age shouldn't be limited to teenagers and 20-somethings. I think, you know, better to do it at some point than not do it at all, right? Yeah, like, yeah better late than never. Yeah, absolutely. She's getting her act together, but... Can we just talk about how the book started for you? Because it's fun. It's just fun. And it's not totally fluffy. There's a lot happening, but I just, I'm so charmed by this book. Oh, that's, so I have to say, it's it's thrilling to hear you say that because I really wanted to write a fun book. I mean, to be honest, I wanted to have fun writing it. And then I hoped it would be fun when people read it. But the origins of it are that, my family was watching a lot of Saturday Night Live early in the pandemic. And I noticed, as other people have noticed, um, the the pattern of men from Saturday Night Live who are talented, but like, you know, mortal men dating and in some cases marrying women who are guests on the show as hosts or musical performers who are like transcendent beautiful, super talented, almost goddesses at the top of their game professionally. Um, And I thought, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it happens when the genders are switched. It doesn't happen with the talented but ordinary woman and the kind of transcendently gorgeous celebrity man. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought, I thought someone should write a screenplay where a female writer at a show like SNL writes a sketch making fun of this. And then that week she and the the male host, you know, have unexpected chemistry. And then a few months passed and I thought to myself, maybe that screenplay should be a novel. And mm-hmm. maybe that someone 
who is writing it should be me. And then yeah. I did. <laughs> I have not been watching a lot of Saturday Night Live for a while. And I do, like, I'll catch clips on the backside and things like that. But I mean, it's, I don't know, how long has it been around at this point? It's been around since the 70s, right? It's so funny because, so I, I know exactly. Um, in the novel, the main character, Sally, mentions that she and the stand-in for the show, which is called The Night Owls, were, were both born in 1981. In real life, Saturday Night Live and I were both born in 1975. So we are exactly the same age. I did not watch as a baby. I've been watching off and on since I was about 10. So that would have started with like Belushi and Chevy Chase and yeah. Dan Aykroyd. Sort of what we think of as legendary. Yeah comedy and yet here you are bringing it in to 2023 i mean i like this cast <laughs> i really like this cast but i really like sally mills she Aww. really like she's familiar in a way but also she's good at what she does and yet she's still kind of side-eyeing her own career a little bit and i think that's partially sort of the world we we live in and this is something you've done in all of your books, honestly, is sort of play with this idea of, do we get what we want? Mm -hmm. You know, women more often than men, what do we actually want? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's playing in that space, that gray area where you're very wry, which I appreciate. Thank you. And I think you've said this before in other interviews, that plot always comes sort of first for you. And character is a close second kind of thing. Can we talk about structuring all of the beats in this book, because it, it's a little bit of a page turner. I mean, I really wanted to know, and then you do something in the middle that made me, okay, I kind of squealed a little bit when we got to ah! the email exchange, because I was like, yes, this is totally satisfying. And I do want to talk about that structure, because people don't really use that as a device anymore. And I'm like, we've lost the ability to write letters. Emails don't quite count. I mean, you get close yeah. Yeah. in this email yeah. exchange, but can we just start with the structure of this book? Yeah, I, I love talking about structure. About 50% of the book is a week in the life of the late night sketch comedy show. And as it happens, SNL is such an interesting mix of like it sort of metabolizes current events very quickly and very efficiently. And then it has this incredibly fixed structure week in and week out of like, there's the cold open, there's the the host's monologue, there's some sketches, there's the first musical performance, there's Weekend Update, there's the second musical performance. So it actually had sort of an automatic structure, not the structure of a show on the air, but the structure of preparing for it day by day from, from Monday to Saturday. And that fixed structure was appealing. It was super fun to do research to kind of find the ins and outs of, of how it unfolds. And then um, I don't think it's giving up too much away to say, you know, Sally and this pop star, Noah, um, who's the, the guest host, they have chemistry, but she, as you said, can't get out of her own way and, and can't believe it, even when there's overwhelming evidence. She says something rude to him at the after party that makes things go off the rails, and then they lose touch for two years. And then the pandemic happens and he emails her and basically, you know, not not immediately and not this explicitly, but kind of says, I never stopped thinking about you, uh, which in itself, I think is very romantic. And then they have this email exchange. And that was super fun to write because I kind of felt like like some, one of the pleasures of that for me was 
that the reader would have the same experience that the characters had and would have the exact same information. And so the reader could be like, is that sentence flirtatious or is it totally innocent or is that intentional or you know, um, am I am I too wrapped up in this? And this is just a totally friendly, platonic COVID pen pal ship, or is this like the beginning of you know a great romance? I had a lot of fun with that that section. And then there's a third section where perhaps there's some in-person encounters again. But here we are again. I mean, here's a woman who has grown up in an era where, you know, we've been told we can do and have whatever we want. And she kind of doesn't know. And I did have a moment where I was like, wait a minute, haven't we, haven't we gotten past this particular neuroses? And it's like, well, no, apparently Sally hasn't. <laughs> the neuroses of, of like, am I pretty enough? Yeah. Am I pretty enough? Am I smart enough? Am I like, because she even has moments where I think she's questioning how talented she is. I think she's more, much more professionally confident than personally confident. And I think it's almost like she has personal confidence when her goals are sort of low, but she right. she doesn't know if she's entitled to like shoot for the stars. Like she doesn't, you know, she she feels confident that she's, you know, worthy of a man she's not into mm -hmm. or a man she's not not that. Oh man, there's some into. dogs. <laughs> there are some dogs in her past. <laughs> But she's not sure that she's worthy of someone. I mean, it's all—it's like, actually, I quote this line, which I think is attributed to Groucho Marx. I would never want to be a member of a club that would, that would you know, accept me. And, and so she's not sure, like, is someone that I am into, into me? And that feels kind of unfathomable to her. That's where I sort of want to tap. Yeah, and I'm talking about tapping a fictional character on the shoulder, but such as such as the bookseller's <laughs> lament, right? Like, oh God, I'm talking about fictional people like they're real. That's that's my dream. I take it whether or not you mean that as a compliment. I take it as well. Oh no, no, no! It is a compliment. No, it's totally a compliment. It's also me making fun of myself a little bit because I am talking about fictional characters. But you know, there were a couple of moments, sort of in that first section, and certainly while she was emailing with Noah, where I was like, okay listen you <laughs> someone just needs to give you a little like pat on the shoulder and tell you it's going to be fine because she really does have this self-sabotage i don't want to say mechanic but she has a thing for self-sabotage and yeah. i was kind of like wait a minute wait a minute aren't you a little further along than like you know because i remember coming up sort of you know watching my mom wrestle with that whole like you know working and having a life and having kids and just all of this stuff and i'm like that's a lot that's a lot to process like haven't we moved a little further along and yet here's sally kind of bopping along not quite having it together it's interesting because my my experience of real life is I, I feel very lucky to have friends that i talk very openly with and sometimes i'll have these like talented, successful, accomplished, and, and, you know, very attractive friends. And they'll, they'll really casually say something so insulting about themselves. Like, you know, like, like maybe, maybe one of my friends will say like, I'm just so incompetent as a mother or like, you know, I'm, I'm dating someone and I saw his ex-girlfriend and she's gorgeous. And I'll think you're gorgeous. Like, so it's, I, I do, I feel like among people I know, I'm sorry to say, I think 
being self-critical is very common. Like I don't, I think that, you know, a lot of us in adulthood find enough confidence to kind of get by and get through the days. But if you really start excavating, and I, I think this is true, you know, for any gender, any success level, I think, I think people have incredible vulnerabilities and insecurities. And we happen to be privy to all of Sally's because she's the one telling the story. Well, and I mean, it makes for a great novel. I mean, because stuff happens. <laughs> I mean, yeah. We need stuff to happen. There are a couple of moments with Noah, the musician, where he's kind of like, he really is such just a kind, normal human being. Like he just says things that are grown up and it's clear that whatever work he's done on himself, he's done on himself. And here's this guy and she's just like a little amazed that he's so normal. And yet we all know so many friends. And again, male, female, it just everyone has had this experience where you're just like, wow you are a potential partner and you're a person and there's no reindeer games and there's no like at one point he's just like Sally you just have to tell me when you're uncomfortable like I can't read your mind yeah. I'm paraphrasing Wait, what poorly. are reindeer games oh I, that's a phrase I use with like people playing games with each other like I it's something I hate like I just yeah 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 when, like when you're being manipulative being like, and weird yeah, yeah I just call it reindeer games because yeah. I'm like ugh. I can't. Like, I just can't. That? I have no can, patience for that. Can I use that expression? Feel free. <laughs> no, <laughs> feel free. I'll attribute it to you. No, it, it, whatever. But I mean, it's just, it, no, because we all know people who like will play games and all of that kind of stuff. And I just kind of stare and I'm like, no, I'm not right, here for it. Right, I'm just right. like, I can't read your mind. I'm so not interested in this. Right, right. I and especially, I think do. the older you get, yeah, the less, the less patient. Because I think, I think if you're, if you're sort of 15 and someone's kind of playing games with you, maybe you think, well, this, this is what it is. And it, it's d difficult and mysterious to interact with, with people. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I didn't know anything at 15. <laughs> I'm pretty sure like I could probably match my clothes and, you know, brush my hair. But I don't know. It was so long ago anyway. But um, for me too. let's go back to romantic comedy for a second, because the chemistry that these two characters have it's just kind of nice no i didn't feel like you were trying to say to me here's this story right like it was just kind of like yeah i really want to see what happens between these people so who showed up first though sally or noah or did they sort of did you know you just needed a pair and it was going to sort out however it did because i feel like you think about your stuff long before we get to read it huh well, I mean, I, I think that Sally definitely came first and I, I felt like, okay, who, who is she and what's her backstory? And it felt important to me, actually, she had what she describes as a starter marriage in her twenties. So she's not, it's not as if she's actually aspiring to get married at this point. And she's not even really looking for a romantic connection. I think her professional goals are clearer to her than her personal goals. I wanted to write about someone who is essentially good at her job. She in some ways feels like she has the world figured out insofar as she needs to for her life. And then she ends up realizing that she's wrong on many fronts, which is actually, I really love the combination in, in writing fiction of writing about someone who's intelligent, self-aware, and incorrect in their 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 beliefs and assumptions about themselves and other people. 
I mean, that's where the fun comes from, though. I mean, again, if like nothing happens and there are some novels that I've read simply because the language is beautiful and that's great. And that's a different experience from this. But here I am rooting for Sally to figure it out. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally just for her to figure it out. And I have to say, I didn't I didn't dislike the first husband, but at the same time, I was like, oh, he's just not the right guy for uh, her at all. Like, totally. Like, I mean, and I think you know what I'm referring to. At one point, he looks at her and goes, but we don't live in New York. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just yeah. like, oh, honey, you got to go. Like, yeah, this isn't yeah. even, this is not, this isn't something that you fix over oatmeal the next morning. This is, you got to go. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think it gets back to what you were saying before about sort of like, what do we expect out of life? What do we have the right to expect? Like, is having, you know, a relationship or a marriage that's fine, is that something that, you know, a person should accept? And is it greedy to want more? Or is it like, you know, this is, this is your wild and precious life. And like, of course, you should want more. And I'm I'm not really sure of the answer to that question. I think it also varies from person to person. And it certainly, you know, has probably varied over time too. But there's that tension too between the public and the private, right? Like Noah mm -hmm. is this very sort of famous and has been famous for half of his life or more mm -hmm. than half of his life kind of thing. And Sally has a certain level of fame. I mean, even as a writer, because not everyone knows that television writers, you know, can become their own kind of names, but she's had stuff go viral. People know who she is. She's not, you know, some stranger in the corner wanting to do something. She's actually doing all of this work. And yet the tension between what people expect when they meet Noah or who they think he is or because of the experience of their music. And it's just, it's kind of great. But I want to talk about constructing that because, you know, when prep hit, it turned into a pretty big hit immediately. I mean, there was uh, no, like, when it hit, I remember that book going straight to the top of the New York Times list in, what, a couple of weeks. Uh, it, it actually, it's so funny because it was a surprise bestseller, I think, I think including to me and my publisher. <laughs> When I look back on Prep, which came out in 2005, I think of it as like the movie version of a first novel that, you know, almost no one ever experiences where, I mean, I think there is a fundamentally sort of different experience. I don't, I'm not sure if this is what you're alluding to, but like to be a person who gets recognized in public, which Noah absolutely is, and Sally isn't, and also I am not. I mean, I think there's something very different about going through the world and people feeling like they know you when they've never met you. If I go to an event where, where I'm the featured writer, then I think someone can look at me and know that I'm Curtis. But I think that when I'm in the grocery store or something like that, like, you know, like maybe once or twice a year, someone might approach me because they recognize me as a writer. But for the most part, I don't think that's the case at all. I think I think you have to be like Stephen King level to, to be recognized in the grocery store. I get that, but don't you think it's changed your understanding of how people move in the world to a certain extent? Yes, yes. Like I, I think one thing I will say, so I, I feel like, you know, I have a book come out every two or three years. Mm-hmm. And I get attention. I mean, like in the form right. of like, here, here we are talking or there mm -hmm. are articles or whatever. But I, I then feel like I don't get a lot of attention in for the next two or three, you know, it's, it's, there's sort of like a flurry around publication. And in all honesty, 
as a person who's not primarily a public person and doesn't have the infrastructure, I find it like a little bit overwhelming. And so sometimes I think to myself, oh my God, if this is what it feels like to have a book come out, which again, I mean, devastatingly to both of us, most of the world is not like, you know, huge, avid novel readers. Like, like, you know, there are many, but like the average American is not, is not like waiting for publication day for, for some novel. So it's like, if I have a very watered down version of having public exposure and attention, and I feel a little bit overwhelmed, I do think, oh my God, like, what is it like to be John Legend? Or what is it like to be Taylor Swift? It just must be very strange. But watching Noah sort of navigate this stuff and the idea that he's actually a dude who can speak to his feelings in a way, it's kind of adorable watching him sort of help Sally maneuver this language because there's this idea that women, as women, we're sort of fluent in this emotional landscape in a way where, I'm sorry, I grew up in Boston, like we don't do this. We don't, like we don't know how to do this. We really, maybe when the gin comes out, like the gin and the cheese and crackers, but even then it's like not the real thing. So here's this guy, you know, who's just like, yeah, I can talk about my feelings and I'm not gonna like burst into flame. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he is very open about the fact that he's in therapy, he's in recovery. I mean, he's kind of, I think he's gone to a, you know, like like in the distant past, went to a darker place than Sally and kind of had to address some of his demons head on, whereas she's almost like hosting along, mostly, you know, repressing her feelings. But I remember a few years back being in touch with this guy that I had known growing up who was like um, singing the praises of Brene Brown. And I was like, so I thought it was so lovely and touching. And I was I was so happy that he had found Brene Brown and that he felt comfortable, mm-hmm. you know, praising her so openly. And and I'm now 47. And I think that that if you interact with someone, if I interact with someone who's my age, who's, you know, in their 40s, I do think there's kind of a difference between a person, if you get to know another person well, a person who has sort of faced some of their challenges or you know if you want to say trauma or whatever and and kind of like thought you know maybe maybe these are ways in which my upbringing was disappointing or other people have been disappointing and this is this is how I've tried to work on myself and get to the other side of it I think there is a difference between someone like that and someone who's just chosen to kind of ignore everything that haunts them or everything that ever went wrong there's an intimacy and a sort of a feeling of eavesdropping. I felt like I was eavesdropping ha. on everything that was happening. And especially, obviously, when I'm reading the emails, I was like, this is excellent. This is so great. Right. Well, I hope I hope it's like eavesdropping in the best possible way. Yeah, you know, no, like, no. But that's, that's what I mean. In some ways, I think, actually, that's my ideal as a novelist is mm-hmm. to, to make you feel like you're, you're eavesdropping. Or like I will go for walks with my close female friends and, and sometimes... I almost feel like more than I aspire to write some like great literary work of art, I want to tell some story that the reader wants to like urgently find out what happens. And the feeling, the the specific feeling I want to give is like my friend saying to me, this crazy thing happened to me. And I want to be like, what happened? And then what? And then what? And then what? And I want the reader to feel that way, to feel like, okay, wait, but then like so so I do want to write like an emotional 
page turner, not necessarily like a plot page turner. I mean, so, to some extent it is, but it's not, it's not murders. But yeah, like I want somebody to think, okay, I need to know how this turns out. There's a great exchange sort of early in the first section where Noah and Sally are working on the show and they're, they're prepping for what's going to be this live appearance. And they're sort of joking back and forth about Sally wants to, she knows she wants to write sort of feminist romantic comedies. And he's like, well, what is that? I mean, is that just, you know, a romantic comedy with an Indigo Girls soundtrack? And she's like, no, actually, like your characters get to be flawed. They get to be people. They get to, and she's got this whole great riff and, and it's kind of the perfect encapsulation of what you do in your novels and your short stories in general, which is kind of like, I'm going to give you these messy people. And before you know what happens, you're going to totally care about them. Uh, <laughs> you're going to be yeah. so invested. You're going to feel like you're eavesdropping on them. And you're going to feel like you don't want to let go of them at the end of it. I mean, listen, I hope everyone's doing what they need to do. And um, again, I'm talking like about fictional characters, like they're sitting down the hall for me. But they might be, they might be. They could be. I, anything is possible. But are we talking about a structural trick? Is that something that comes out of like knowing your character's cold and knowing where the plot needs to go? Or is that just kind of like, I'm going to noodle and see what happens. I'm going to let these characters surprise me. Cause I feel like there's more engineering in here than maybe people think. Cause when stuff flows on the page, not everyone thinks, Oh, a lot of work went into this. You know what I mean? Like you're making it look easy. It's it's effortless. No, you're you're a hundred percent right that I think, you know, sometimes a scene kind of comes out exactly as I would wish for it to. And then sometimes a scene that's supposed to be fun and fizzy. It's like I labored over it and revised it seven times. And I think it's really a combination of what you're describing. Like, you know, sometimes characters have a conversation and I just sort of follow the dialogue and, and let it unfold organically, almost the way a conversation between, between real people might. And then other times, I do think very concretely and deliberately, like, like obviously Sally is someone who has pain inside her, as almost mm -hmm. everyone does. And it's like, what is that pain? You know, is it is right. it kind of temperamental? Is it based mm -hmm. on experiences? what are the what was her upbringing like what was her relationship with her parents she she was an only child um she grew up in kansas city missouri she snuck watched the stand-in for saturday night live when she was you know starting in like fourth grade her mother bribed her to sleep in her own bed by giving her a tv she kind of entered the world of comedy writing through the world of writing as opposed to the world of comedy she wasn't she didn't do stand-up she didn't do improv which is relatively unusual um for for that you know sketch mm -hmm, comedy mm -hmm. world and but instead she was she like worked for a a luxury credit card magazine and she worked for like the newsletter of a healthcare company and she would she would submit these comedy packets mm -hmm. to the tv show every year kind of with no hope thinking there was no hope of of ever making it on and then you know she did and so it's kind of like i, I mean i think that some of it i have to I think there are some people who are almost like, I need to know my character's favorite food and I need to write right. their diary entries. And I don't go that far, mm -hmm. but I do feel like they need to feel real to me yeah, yeah. to allow me to make them feel real to the reader. Yeah. And I want to build on something you just said, that feeling real for you and feeling real for the reader. Likeability. 
Mm. I'm going to bring up the L word and I hate the L word. And I am kind of amazed we still occasionally have uh, conversations about, you know, whether characters are likable or not. I don't need to like characters to be involved in a story. I just, I need to be in the world of the novel. And I don't mean that necessarily in a sci-fi fantasy kind of, I mean, every novel is its own world, right? Mm -hmm, Regardless of mm -hmm. whether it's domestic fiction or whatever. One of the things I've always appreciated about your work is that you're kind of like, well, you like them or you don't. This is not my problem. My problem is how to figure out how to tell this story well mm -hmm. and be really invested that way. And I'm just like, oh, why? And I mean, you did write a novel called Rodham. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. you wrote American Wife. Like everyone has opinions about some of these women. And, you know, the idea that Sally just gets to be messy on the page or like you're Elizabeth Bennett from Eligible gets to be really messy on the page. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I don't mm -hmm. necessarily like them every minute, but I like them enough. Mm -hmm. And certainly I like your Rodham and I like your American wife enough to say, all right, where am I going with you? And Lee is adorable, Lee from Prep. She's just, she's Well, great. I mean, there's no consensus really on what likable is. So I don't know how a person would almost try to write toward likability. Like it would be like, Whose definition, you know, like, would it be like someone who never swears or something like that's some people's <laughs> definition of likable or would it be someone who's like a super loving, attentive mother or would it be like a very irreverent mother? I mean, you just you can't please everyone. So you might as well kind of write the book you want to write, write the characters you want to write and trust that some people will go along with you. Not everyone will. And like, I, I always get some bad reviews and, and, you know, I, I think sometimes it's just, I have a sensibility that's different sometimes from some reviewers and like, that's okay. I remember early on too, lots of folks were like, well, prep isn't as chick ficky as I thought. I mean, chick fic was a phrase we used back then to describe <laughs> that kind of package. Right. And, mm -hmm. and I remember folks saying, you know, well, it didn't feel all that chick ficky to me. And I'm like, because it's not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I mean, it's just, it's not. It's sort of this darkly comic, like, are you kidding me? Did you just say, oh, yeah, you just said that. Okay. Like, all of these moments that happen, and granted, it's a prep school and whatever, and, you know, everyone's raised by wolves. Ah. But at the same time, you know, the idea that people keep trying to sort of slot you into a space, and I'm like, no, it's just Curtis being Curtis. I mean, ah. <laughs> that could be like like in bookstores i could i could be in the curtis being curtis yeah seriously thing. curtis being curtis i mean just this idea that we're always trying to categorize and you know just and say this is where this belongs and i'm like it's kind of just a great story about characters i wouldn't have encountered necessarily unless curtis sittenfeld put them in front of me i mean i think i do think that categories of fiction mm -hmm. exist more as like a sales and marketing mm -hmm. tool, um, then do they exist as like clear distinctions in the minds of writers? And I think there are plenty of writers who kind of transcend, genre. like it's like a literary sci-fi book or it's like a historical romance or whatever. So I don't, I think that in my experience, writers rarely kind of take those clear delineations into consideration. I mean, if Emma Straub can do time travel, y'all, I mean, like, 
That's just, <laughs> yeah. I It's all in the delivery. One of your characters says that. No, it's all in the delivery. And it is all in the delivery. Yeah. Can we talk about, though, some of the influences? I mean, you studied with Ethan Kanan and Marilyn Robinson at Iowa, which I can only imagine how great both of those experiences are. I mean, you workshopped a little bit of prep while you were still getting your MFA there. But can we talk about some of the other literary influences that have helped sort of form this voice that I think of as yours? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I actually think my my biggest single influence is Alice Munro, um, the Canadian short story writer who I first read in in high school. I mean, I, I feel like she's a magician and every everything she does is perfect. But I mean, some of the things like in terms of actually the likability question, she I've I've never met her, but she appears to be totally indifferent to it. And like she appears to operate on the assumption that, of course, we're all self-interested. Of course, we all have, you know, unattractive impulses, which we might or might not try to conceal from other people. Um, she's just so good at the really specific moment, the really specific nuanced emotions. She's so good at kind of like, you know, showing how people do and don't find connections with each other. And so even though, I mean, it's like she largely writes about, you know, people living in rural Canada, maybe a hundred years ago or 50 years ago or whatever. And I, so I don't, I don't think that people, most people, I think when, when people think of influences, they often think in terms of subject matter more than style. And so I don't think most people would be like, clearly Curtis was influenced by Alice Monroe, but I definitely was. Yeah, I mean, honestly, yeah, I wouldn't have drawn a straight line, but I love hearing because I mean, I was talking to someone the other day too, and she was like, "No, Edward P. Jones." Oh, and I was like, oh, it was Rachel Hang. We were talking about the Great Reclamation, oh. which is set oh. in Singapore in like oh. the forties, fifties, and sixties. I 60s. love her stories. I haven't read. Oh, is that yeah, out? is that out yet? Yeah, that... it's just out, and it is so good. You'll fly yeah. through it. It's so she's good. a phenomenal. Right, I think I've read two of her short stories. Yeah, and yeah. they both are like super haunting. She's right, the one from May in the New Yorker in the nursing home. That one, and you're just like, what did I just read? Yeah, this is wild. This is amazing. But Edward P. Jones, Lost in the City and the Known World, like the way he uses time in the Known World and the way the oh, story fascinating back in that she's influenced. Yeah. The minute she said it, I was like, I totally get that. Yeah, it is absolutely not what I would have expected. And I just I love the idea that we're always sort of going back to, you know, these influences that may not appear immediate but then you hear it and you're like oh that makes perfect sense actually. yeah 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 i think that's probably true for all all writers have their sort of their like person that you know they they kind of revere even if no one else knows <laughs> that, that they revere them well i mean telling stories is probably the first human thing any of us ever did right like even if you're not doing it as a published person i mean telling stories is one really fun but also how we find our place in the world and how we give context to what we're doing. I mean, the context too for romantic comedy. I mean, did you watch a ton of romantic comedies, by the way, or did you just let yourself write the book you wanted to write? Because honestly, I can't imagine watching a lot of really. Yeah, oh. I'm not good with that. I'm really. It's weird. I'm. My brother loves romantic comedies, and I'm kind of like, if stuff blows up, I'm good. Mm -hmm. I. I I can't explain it. It might be the Boston thing. But no, let's talk about research for a second. Because there, I mean, obviously, there's the Saturday Night Live piece. There's the pop culture piece. There's the, you know, who's dating whom kind of thing. But yeah, 
I mean, when you're watching a romantic comedy, you know you're watching a romantic comedy. Right, I mean, right, right. Like right. when Harry Met Sally just pops into mind or like, right, right. How which I love. Yeah, right. like all of right. this stuff. But I feel like there's a little bit of that running through romantic comedy, but not in an obvious way. I mean, absolutely. So, like, I, I think that in some ways, some of what made romantic comedy really fun to write was that I think all of the components were already like inside me. So, you know, from a very young age, like fourth grade, fifth grade, I read romances, including Harlequin romances and, um, you know, the, the sort of books with the couple embracing on the cover while their while their hair blows back. I loved romantic comedies, like seeing, you know, I saw When Harry Met Sally in the theater. I, right, you right. know, Say Anything, like- um, Oh my God, you the know. boom box, right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm still still waiting on that. Um, and then I also, I mean, I read people.com like mm -hmm. every day of my life. I and mean, I think I read it as kind of like non-toxic procrastination. So yeah. it's not like there's some gossip sites where you're just like, I feel dirty. And like yeah. I, I know that the subject of that little article wishes that article didn't exist. And that doesn't usually feel like the case with, with people.com. So it's like you know, the sort of not just celebrities, but like how we talk about celebrities, mm -hmm. like all yeah. that is is in my bloodstream. So it's like I definitely did research about how Saturday Night Live works. And mm -hmm. I, you know, listened to comedian podcasts, which was right. a joy, like, you know, Mike Birbiglia's Working It Out or WTF right. with Mark Marin. Yeah. So it was like doing that research was a delight. Reading memoirs by former cast members was so much fun. Um, but I already had been an SNL viewer for like more than 30 years. So like I, there were certain facts I had to nail down, but the general sensibility and a lot of the topics were were ones that I was naturally interested in well before writing the book. Did you surprise yourself at all while you were writing romantic comedy? So it's funny because I've had the experience more than once where after I've finished a book, I'll, I'll be going back and like looking for something. And, and in my, I'll find an email. In this case, I found an email that I sent to my editor and agent laying out what the structure would be. Oh, wow. And it actually totally conforms, except that I said, this seems so delusional that I can't even believe I, I uh -huh. sincerely said, I said, I think it's going to be about 90 pages. It's going to be like a super short novel. So I think the part that surprised oh. me, which is ridiculous because my other books are like 400 or 500 pages. It's 300 pages and it's like an airy 300 pages, especially yeah, yeah. the email section. Yeah, yeah. But I think I thought, I thought I'm going to write, this is going to be like the tightest, shortest, like maybe it doesn't even count as a novel. Maybe it's a novella. And it, it was, that was totally incorrect. So I did surprise myself with the length of it, but not really with the structure or the, uh, the focus. Yeah. I'm frequently the person who's like, yeah, I could have lost a hundred pages. I mean, ha, I, mean yeah. I am totally that person. And I'm looking at this yeah. book going, I don't know if you can do that. <laughs> like, I yeah. don't think it could lose anything and and when you say breezy 300 pages i mean yeah i flew flew through this book yeah i think it is a quick read I, a lot of people have said to me oh i read it in a day or i you know like i i read it before bed and then i woke up at 6 a.m and i finished it 
there's a similarity to eligible because obviously, I mean, Elizabeth Bennett and Darcy, like you were having a, you were clearly having a good time with that book. There are some notes you have to hit because it's Pride and Prejudice, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this book sort of felt like you were kind of flying around on the page and just having a really good time and literally writing the book you wanted to read. That's totally true. I mean, it's funny because actually I wrote Eligible mm-hmm. because these two British editors reached out to me and said, we're doing something called the Austin Project. We're asking mm-hmm. various writers to to write modern retellings mm-hmm. of Austin novels, would you like to be the person who rewrites Pride and Prejudice? Yeah. Which as a side note, I mean, anyone can. Like it's there's the copyright is expired. So it's, right. it's not like I was like tapped by the estate of Jane Austen. It's funny to think about maybe I wouldn't have written romantic comedy if I hadn't written eligible because I at the time, this is going back to like 2011. Right. I thought to myself, oh my God, if I sat at my desk and wrote you know, uh, my own Pride and Prejudice, I I would know that I was writing toward a happy ending. Like I would, it's almost like mixing my own, you know, angsty, like personality with, you know, this like fun and lightness. And I, it was kind of radical to like think somebody else had given me this happy subject matter it had just I mean it had fallen in my lab essentially which was such a stroke of good fortune but like I could say yes to it like it, it wasn't like my my fate that I can't fight is to to write you know dark or depressing or sad books and I can I can even still have like my festively neurotic characters but they can be they can be working their way toward a happy ending instead of working their way towards like crushing disappointment and like the truth is that I started writing a different book in 2020 2020 not romantic right. comedy okay. like I knew that I wanted to write a fun light short book mm-hmm. I started writing a book it became apparent after six to eight months it was not short not light not fun right. and then I was kind of casting around and I definitely feel like I just function better as a human being when I'm writing than when I'm not writing. Like I, I mm-hmm. think I, my brain almost has just needs something to like focus on. And so I, and I almost like when I thought, Oh, you know, that idea that I thought someone should write that screenplay, mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. like, could, could I do this? Is this, is this like legal is, you know, can I write something that's just, so frothy and fun and then like I had to be like yes Curtis you can isn't it possible though that sometimes frothy and fun is also really subversive oh absolutely absolutely there are times where I'm just like you know we can't actually have joy I mean the world is a complicated place and lots of bad stuff is happening and but like sometimes I just need and yeah, here I am saying I don't really watch romantic comedies, which I don't, but I like, I will watch a movie where stuff blows up and it's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. premises are yeah. more ridiculous than any kind of meet cute yeah. kind of, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you want to fly a car where? No. <laughs> yeah. No, but I think you're so, I mean, like, I almost feel like, like when you're saying like, we can actually have joy, like, it's mm-hmm. like, there should be like t-shirts or pillows that say that. I mean, you're, you're right. And I'm someone, I'm like an extremely lucky person. And yet I have to remind myself of that. You know, like it's just, you can kind of, sometimes it's hard to, hard to like remember that some of our daily grind is self-enforced and doesn't need to be. 
And sometimes you just need a really good book. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes always, just... always you need a really good book. A really good book. Do you miss Sally and Noah and their world? That's an interesting question. I will say, so I wrote this book more quickly than most of my other books. Yeah. In part because of COVID, because I was writing it, yeah. you know, while things were still kind of shut down and I wasn't mm -hmm. traveling. So I wasn't interrupting myself. But I also wasn't interrupting myself and and kind of, you know, writing 80 pages and then being like, I want to write a short story. And I think the reason I wasn't interrupting myself was that I was always glad to go back to them. I was always glad yeah. to enter their world. Like it was it was fun and funny and romantic. And so now sometimes somebody will ask me or like, you know, to it, it, as I in this moment prepare for the publication and so, and think about like, oh, if I'm going to, you know, read a little excerpt at an event, what will it be? And, and if I open the book, I do, I feel this sort of like happiness and light and like, I, I, I like to be around them. I doubt that I'll ever like write a sequel, but. Oh maybe. yeah. I don't know. I wasn't, sorry. I wasn't asking if you were going to write a sequel. I, I think the book as itself, I don't think everything needs a sequel or a prequel. I, I think sometimes I mean, a thing yeah. is just the thing. Yeah, yeah, um, And it sits in the world and you're like, this is great. I yeah. wish I could read it again for the first time. And yeah. yet, you know, and also when you're a bookseller too, it's like, does this live in the house or does it go back into the uh, office? Yeah. <laughs> because honestly, otherwise you end up with just yeah. too much. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it's am I going to reread this or yeah. am I? And, and it's always kind of fun to sort of think about what comes next, but yeah, it was just, it's the right book for this moment that we're in. It's just, it's, it's smart frothy and it's oh. smart fun. And it's Thank just, you. you know, it's like, yeah, it's just kind of great. And you know, Noah has really good taste in houses. So I mean, ha! you get to do the whole, like, you know, spying on someone's architecture kind of thing where it's like, you know, I, especially when you live in New York and there are tiny apartments, everyone knows what that, yeah, knows that yeah. part. But are you working on anything new? Is there a story collection maybe coming or is there another novel? I or? think, I think there is likely to be a story. I mean, I think in the fullness of time, there's yeah. likely to be a novel and a story collection. I mm -hmm. hope, I hope that I will write a story collection sooner rather than later. Cause I definitely love stories in addition to loving novels. Yeah, can we just all try and bring story collections back? I mean, every now and yes. again, a story collection will pop and you'll just be like, yes, see, stories yeah. are awesome. And then you go back to this moment where it's like people don't really want story collections. And I'm like, listen, if you can scroll for 15 minutes on your phone, you can read a story on your phone. Yeah. Like, yeah, you can yeah. totally read a short story on your phone. And yeah. sometimes you can, you know, read a short story on a like placard. I mean, Stories are amazing, flexible things. Yeah, they don't. Yeah, it's the perfect like before bed. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I think I think in some ways because I'll get this feedback where sometimes people will say I don't usually like short stories, but I like yours, and I think that's not entirely a compliment. Or like I think, oh my god, you just haven't met enough lovely, nice short stories. Um, but I think some of people's have hesitation seems to be like it you know i get to know a character and then i lose them and i've like invested in you know knowing them and memorizing their name or whatever and but i think that like if you read one story a night before bed you kind of get around that where you you sort of know this and then you can go to sleep and forget it and we're like you know like just remember a few outlines or remember the feeling the story gave you or like some moment in it and then 
the next night you read another one and, yeah. and your brain, your brain will be ready for it. I do love a story collection. I mean, I love short stories on their own too, but I do love a story collection where you're just like, because the thing is too, if it's a writer I really like, I don't care that the characters change from place to yeah. place to place. And yeah. like, I also don't need, you know, it's a linked story collection. You can pretend it's a novel. It's like, no, it's okay for it to be a linked story collection yeah. or, yeah. you yeah. know, novel and stories. I'm like, yeah. no, it's okay if it's a short yeah. story collection. I yeah. swear. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, it's just, it's, I want the experience of those characters and that narrative voice and just you can do whatever you're going to do and I'll follow you. But anyway, yeah. Curtis Sittenfeld, thank you so much. Romantic comedy is out now. And if you haven't read Eligible and if you haven't read Prep, well, go back and get them. I know everyone else has read American Wife and Rodham, but I'm going to yell for the ones that, you know, everyone should go back and reread. <laughs> well, thank you. This was so fun. Thank you so much. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of great books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Romantic Comedy. I'm Mark coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I'm joined by my book buddy, Madison. Hello. Hello, I'm Madison coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Los Angeles. So we've got a couple of great books to talk about. I'm going to go ahead and jump right in with our April Fiction Monthly pick for Barnes & Noble, and that is The Lonely Hearts Book Club by Lucy Gilmore. It is so cute. It's so charming. We follow this kind of quiet but mildly snarky librarian who begins this sort of daily battle of snark with this curmudgeonly grump uh, named Arthur. He is one of those people, if you've worked in the service industry, if you have worked as a bookseller, there's always going to be a customer from time to time who just kind of gets off on pushing people's buttons. Nothing is the right answer, but you can tell that there's this like glint of something in his eye that he's actually having a great time. And so Sloan, this librarian, she is really having a great time with Arthur. They start this back and forth. It kind of is making her day in a way that she really didn't expect it initially started as kind of like, Oh God, here, here he comes this eye roll of a customer. But it turns out that he is playful in just a wonderful way. Cut to Arthur stops showing up at the library and Sloan gets a little worried. She has become more invested in this person than I think she realized. And so she decides to push past the boundaries of customer employee relationship and seeks him out at his home. The story that ensues, the journey that follows really is about uh, connection uh, with a community, connection with the people around you. It's just got a great message of the ways that books can pull people together. I think the magic of stories connects all of us. And it's novels like this that really champion the way that books can thread a community together. It's a real big charmer, highly recommend, and you can pick up your paperback copy in any of our stores right now. Uh, and that is The Lonely Hearts Book Club by Lucy Gilmore. Madison, what do you have for us? Yes, I have another good like romantic comedy book to recommend. It is YA, so it is extra on the fluff <laughs> in terms of romance. And that is XOXO by Axie O. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of O's. I love this book because it follows Jenny. She is in Los Angeles. She's 
a girl in high school who loves playing the cello. That's what she wants to do for her career. Like she just wants to be a musician in this like classical music world. She has her whole life planned out what she wants to do, where she wants to do it. And then one night she veers from the plan and she spends the evening running around with a boy she met at her uncle's karaoke bar um, named Jeyu. He's handsome. He's mysterious. He's flirty, but he just kind of gives her like a night she'll always remember. They go out, they, they explore, they do, they have karaoke, they go into the traditional photo booth. We love that in a good romance. Movie, novel, getting into that photo booth, taking the fun pictures, that's always a nice staple. So she has this night, and then after that night, she never hears from him again which in my opinion is a red flag. Like if he doesn't contact you again, then just forget about him. But instead she meets him again, but in a place you wouldn't think she, you would meet him um, because she moves all the way to South Korea with her mother to take care of her grandmother. So her plans kind of derailed, but she knows she still wants to do music. She still wants to play the cello. She gets into this prestigious art school in Seoul to study. And she's kind of out of her element. And then she walks into class and lo and behold, who is a student there other than the boy she met in Los Angeles? So you kind of see their like romance kind of begin to form. He, you know, he has a reason why he like couldn't talk to her. And it's because he happens to be an idol. And so K-pop idols, they're technically not allowed to date because they're an idol. They have to be like idolized. So then kind of begins this like forbidden romance type trope it's a fun story full of like fun characters I always love a good author who can write like the witty side character and you get a few of those which is refreshing but you know it's a story of young love and young love is cute and it's fluffy which is why I think it's like such a good pick for like something that falls in the genre of romantic comedy plus if you're a fan of BTS the main character is like a copy paste of Jungkook from BTS so also, for fans of K-pop, this is a good pick for you as well. And that was XOXO by Axio. Fantastic pick. I've had a couple of people coming in specifically for that book for quite a while now. And uh, now I know why. So thank you for that. Cute, cute, cute. All right. Well, that's all we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning into Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I'm Madison. You can follow my home store at BN Events Grove. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Happy reading. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.